Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Around this time of the year, that's the question that is on everyone's mind. Many news publications will have front cover stories coming with the latest and greatest answer to that question. From Time Magazine to Newsweek, there'll be many speculations as we approach the Easter season answering the question, who is Jesus? Still other movies and TV shows try to answer the question. The History Channel will have many possible responses. It's the question that has lasted for over 2,000 years. The perhaps most asked question throughout all of history, who is Jesus? The Muslims have their answer. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and the Hebrew Israelites all have their takes on who Jesus is too. But if you want to know who Jesus is, the best place to look is to Jesus himself. What does Jesus say about himself? Who does Jesus think and claim that he is? Well, the only place to find that answer is in the Bible. And so we turn this morning to Matthew chapter 21 as we consider who is this man named Jesus. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 21 as we continue our sermon series through this book. And this morning we will read the entire chapter of Matthew 21. Pray that the Lord would the Lord, the Lord can save people just by reading his word, right? So pray that just the expanded reading of God's word would melt our hearts and cause us to trust Jesus more and more. Matthew 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethany, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a cart with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you sh- if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a cart the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the cart and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? The crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, 
and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing, nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John is a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he said to the other son, he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes Go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priest and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. As we look closely at Matthew 21, I think this is the, the, the main idea, the, the main theme of this entire chapter, of these 46 verses. And so the main idea of the sermon this morning. Rightly recognizing Jesus as king and rightly responding to him is the key to entering his kingdom. Rightly recognizing Jesus as king and rightly responding to him is the key to entering his kingdom. As we study Matthew 21 this morning, we'll draw our attention to three prominent scenes we see in this text about the king. So three points to the sermon. Number one, we'll see the king's arrival. We see that in verses 1 through 11. Point number two, we'll see the king's authority. We see that in verses 12 through 22. And point number three, sadly, we'll see the king's rejection. We see that in verses 23 through 46. Number one, the king's arrival. And number two, the king's authority. And number three, the king's rejection. Point number one, the king's arrival. Have you ever waited for something for so long, and, and yet when it finally comes, it proves to be a letdown? I mean, perhaps people have, have hyped up this movie or this album for months and months and months, but when you finally see it or listen to it, it turns out to be a flop. I waited so long for that? Well, that's not what we find here. The people of Israel have waited a long, long time for their promised king, for their promised Messiah. They've been waiting for thousands of years for his arrival. And Matthew, as he's progressively laid out this story, has told us that in Jesus's birth, the Messiah has come to earth. But it's something that we, the readers, have been let in on earlier than the people living at the time. It's been something of a secret up to this point. The, the full identity of who Jesus is. Jesus has known it. He's not been unaware. He knows who he is and why he came. He was born and lived every day moving toward the events we begin reading about this morning. And he's let his disciples in on who he is and why he came. But, but it's been a close circle. But now, Jesus is ready to take his position public, to let everybody know who he is. He's waited until now, the last week of his life on earth, to do so. It's Sunday. Not just today, but, but then. That's the setting of Matthew 21. 
It's a Sunday around the time of the Passover. The Apostle John fills those details out in his accounts. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are descending upon Jerusalem, the holy city, the capital city, city to celebrate this most sacred festival. There would be nothing extraordinary about one more Jewish man joining the crowds and making the trek with his friends. Except Jesus means to make this moment extraordinary. First, he arranges for a ride. As he's drawing near to the city, he tells two of his disciples in verse two to go into a neighboring village and bring a donkey and a cart to him. And if anyone asks why, they are to respond, the Lord needs them. Notice how Jesus self-identifies himself here. He is the Lord. Enough with all this nonsense that Jesus never claimed to be God. He did so in so many ways, in so many words, and in so many works that you'd, better, you'd be better off just saying you don't believe that Jesus is God. Rather than claiming that he did not believe that. Anyways, the, the Lord sends his disciples on this animal gathering mission. It's a strange mission, it seems. I mean, nobody sacrifices donkeys and colts at Passover time. Well, they weren't meant to be sacrificed, but sat on. That's why Jesus needed them to sit on. And, and not because he lacked stamina but because he was looking to make a statement. Matthew tells us in verse four, this took place to fulfill what the prophet spoke. And he quotes Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, which says, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus knew his Bible. And knew what it said about the coming Messiah, how he would appear to his people and how they would recognize him. In securing a donkey and a cart, Jesus was making the explicit statement that Zechariah was prophesying about me. Amen. Friends, that's what all the Old Testament books are doing, pointing to Jesus. Amen. Just a week or so after these events. Luke chapter 24, verse 47, talks about the resurrected Jesus appearing to a pair of disciples on the road to Emmaus and telling them that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So, so if you want to learn about Jesus, you can start in the New Testament. But you should also go to the Old Testament. You won't find his name there, but you'll find all kinds of references and allusions and prophecies about him. And then when you get to the New Testament, to, to books like Matthew, you find that all these promises and predictions, all these signs and symbols are fulfilled in this one man, Jesus the Christ, in his coming. You see, the entire Bible is about Jesus. 
about his arrival. The Old Testament points to his coming. The Gospels testify that he came. And they and the epistles emphasize that he is coming back. So if you want to grow in knowing Jesus, you must grow in knowing your Bible. That's why we preach through books of the Bible, Old and New Testament, on Sundays. That's why we study the Bible together on Wednesdays. That's why we encourage you to meet together, to dig in God's word throughout the week. Not simply as an end to itself, but to draw you closer to Jesus, who is drawn closer to us. Look at him here, coming to his people, coming for his people on a donkey. You see, how he came is important. He came exactly according to scripture and not according to human standards. I mean, we expect great leaders, kings to come in full regalia, riding on war horses, not work horses. We want Jesus on a stallion, not a donkey. Or so we think. Jesus here in, in mounting the donkey is demonstrating his humility. He has come humble. He has come to bring peace. The careful reader or considerate Jew might remember former kings coming riding on donkeys. Both David and Solomon did so. The gesture marked that it was a time of peace, not war. Was this what the people were expecting? Well, probably not. They wanted a military-minded Messiah who would overthrow Roman rule, who would restore full control of their homeland. But Jesus was coming meekly, peacefully. He came to war, but not against Rome, rather against sin. And he would do so not by taking up a sword, but by laying down his life. This was a king coming to lay claim to a cross, to make peace by his death between sinners like us and God. To make peace that we might be reconciled to him. Be, behold, your king coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. Though not grasping everything, most of the people recognize the significance of the scene. While everyone else is on foot, walking into Jerusalem, this demon-casting, sickness-healing, death-reversing, itinerant Jewish preacher has mounted up on a donkey. And it's as if all the, the gears start shifting into place as they recall what he's done and what he said, what the prophet Zechariah said, and what they now see, they conclude that this Jesus is our king. He is our Messiah. I mean, look at their response. Verse 8 says, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This is something of a poor man's rolling out the red carpet. 
preparing the way for royalty. I mean, in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, we see a similar picture. We read there that after the Lord anoints Jehu as king, that then every man took his garments and put it under him. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. And the branches here, which John tells us were palm branches, were Jewish symbols to, to mark a great celebration. By their actions, the crowds traveling along with Jesus into Jerusalem acknowledge that they believe he is the promised messianic king. And if there's any doubt about that, listen to their words. Verse 9 says, they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is an expression of, of praise. Literally, it means, oh, save, oh, save. And who is this praise directed to? The one they believe can save. Jesus, the promised son of David, the king in the Davidic line who would prove to be savior of the entire world. In verse 10, we learn that the king Jesus finally arrives at his destination. He reaches Jerusalem. And when he does, we read the whole city is stirred up, was alarmed. If you remember, it's the same thing we read way back in chapter two, when the city first learned of Jesus's arrival on earth. Upon news of a newborn king of the Jews, chapter two, verse three says all Jerusalem was troubled or stirred up. They sensed that his coming would unsettle the status quo. It's the same here. And so the residents of Jerusalem are a little less enthusiastic about him than the crowds who accompanied him into town. They don't see his symbolic donkey riding as reason to shout out Hosanna, but rather question, who is this coming and causing such a great commotion? The crowds respond in verse 11, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of, of Galilee. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, which is it? Is Jesus a prophet or a king? Well, yes. Amen. I think we see here that the crowd still don't know all they should about Jesus, are still piecing it together. But the scriptures complete the puzzle for us and telling us about the threefold office of the Messiah. Yes, he is a prophet coming to reveal God's word. He is the very word made flesh. And yes, he is a king coming to fulfill all the promises of a Messiah to rescue and to rule. And as we'll see later in this book, he is also a priest coming to sacrifice and not bulls and goats, but his own body to make redemption for us. In Jesus' coming, the prophet, priest, and king has come to win salvation for his people. And here he is in Jerusalem where it would all take place. Keep your eyes fixed on the king.
And, and as we do, we'll see this king exercise his authority. That brings us to point number two, the king's authority. It's only natural to think that once your position is solidified, is understood, that you start acting like what you are. You start using your power. I mean, some of y'all know this. You get a little promotion at work, elevated to a new position. And it ain't two minutes before you done change your uh, title and your email signature line. Head chief executive supervisor. You start calling meetings the next day, making demands. It comes with the title. Oh, presidents, when they get sworn into office, start signing executive orders into law the exact same day, asserting their authority. Well, here Jesus, now in Jerusalem, having publicly declared through his actions his kingship, a kingship acknowledged by many of the people now starts acting like a king, using his authority. And we see King Jesus' authority expressed in several ways in this passage. First, we see Jesus' authority to cleanse. Jesus' authority to cleanse. We see that here in verse 12 as, as Jesus cleanses the temple. Matthew's gospel condenses uh, some of the events of this final week so that what we read here isn't exactly chronological. Uh, so, for example, Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus entered Jerusalem into, on a Sunday, went to go scan the temple activities, left out of town, and then came back the next day to, to do this cleansing work that we read about here. So Matthew isn't necessarily presenting things chronologically, but more topically. And I think he does so to immediately connect the king's arrival with his immediate authority. And it's what Jesus does here that demonstrates his authoritative power. The temple was the sacred place of Jewish worship, presided over by the religious leaders, or supposedly so. Yet when Jesus arrives, what he immediately finds is not worship, but business. Commerce. This event at the temple probably didn't happen inside the actual temple walls, but, but outside in the temple court. There, money changers were found to exchange people's coins into the temple currency to pay the annual temple tax. There, people selling oxen and sheep and pigeons would be found, as those were some of the animals needed for sacrifice. Now, it's not that these activities in and of themselves were wrong, although there may have been some extortion, some price gouging going on, especially around Passover time, taking advantage of these gullible out-of-town travelers. It's where these things took place that was so wrong. Sure, not in the actual temple itself, but just outside of it, at the temple site close enough to distract from and distort the purpose for the temple in the first place, to worship God in prayer and in sacrifice and in solemnity. And so Jesus drives out all those doing commerce, all those there simply to make money, 
That's not what this place is for. He cleanses the temple area of defilements and says in verse 13, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. It's a combination of quotes from Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, verse 11. Isaiah stated the original purpose of the temple to be a house of prayer for all nations. But Jeremiah stated what it what it had become under the the pollution and the sinful practices of people, a den of robbers, a hideout place for people posturing like they were doing the work of God. But upon closer examination, actually rebels against God with no real religion to show. It's a theme we'll see again soon with the fig tree. In coming to cleanse the temple, Jesus, an out-of-towner, was doing what the religious leaders in Jerusalem should have long ago done, kept the house of God holy. They failed to do so. So Jesus kicked out those who corrupted it. You know, I, I think we see here that King Jesus has the authority to define what should and should not be done in places of worship and to clean up what needs to be kept out. Friends, that's why when we gather together to worship, we don't do whatever our hearts desire. We want to do what Jesus would be pleased with. And how do we know? Well, he tells us in his word. So that's why we sing and we read scripture and we pray and we preach because the Bible says we should do those things. We examine what we do as a church and reform our practices based on the scripture's prescriptions. We believe Jesus' authority to command what worship should look like and to clean up any distortions of it. But we see Jesus' authority not just to cleanse places of worship. We also see his authority to cleanse people to worship. Notice in, in verse 14 that the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. A New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, notes most Jewish authorities forbade any person lame, blind, deaf, or mute from offering a sacrifice, from appearing before Yahweh in his temple. These people were too messed up, too unclean to approach God, to, to worship with his people. Maybe you're here this morning feeling the same way. Maybe it's not some physical defect, but, but some spiritual mess, some emotional mess that has you feeling out of place cut off from God, not worthy to worship him. Your past is, is too messed up. What you've done over the last few years, maybe even over the last few days or hours, your dirt or your hurt disqualifies you from drawing near to God. But friends, let me tell you, Jesus has the authority, the power to cleanse you. He has the power to undo who you were. He heals these sick people, 
cleanses them, removes their shame. And he will heal you. Remove your sin and your guilt and your shame. He died and rose again to take away from you what was wrong with you. He took our sins and our shame and our guilt on the cross and died in our place so that we could cleanly approach God in his name. Friends, don't stay away or stray away from Jesus thinking you need to clean yourself up. Go to him today. Just as these blind and lame came to Jesus in the temple and he'll clean you up. I'm going to talk more about what that looks like. Please see me at the door after service. Talk to someone around you. We love to lead you to the cleansing power of King Jesus and to testify about his cleansing power in our lives. Jesus has the authority to cleanse. We also see in this passage that Jesus has authority to receive praise. Jesus has authority to receive praise. In verse 15, we learn that upon healing these lame and blind, that children were hanging out in the temple yards and that they joined the earlier crowds in exclaiming to Jesus, Hosanna to the son of David. And the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are furious. They say to Jesus in verse 16, do you not hear what they are saying? They are praising you. They recognize something wrong. Praise belongs to God alone. Tell them to stop, Jesus. Don't you hear them? Yes, Jesus responds. And it's right. Jesus here does what no angel ever did. What no mere human should ever do. He receives the worship and praise of people. I mean, when people fall down and worship angels in the Bible, they say, don't do that. We create it just like y'all. When people fall down and worship other people in the Bible, they say, don't do that. Remember in Acts chapter 14, the, the people at Lystra hold Paul and Barnabas to be gods. And they tried to worship them. And Paul said, we are the same nature as y'all. Worship the living God alone. But Jesus here doesn't say, don't do that. Jesus says, yes, they should do that. And then quotes Psalm 8, verse 2. Have you never read that out of the mouth of infants and babes, you have prepared praise? He takes this psalm that directs infants and babies to praise God and appropriates it to himself. Why? Because Jesus is God, the divine son of God, of the same essence of the father and the spirit in the triune Godhead. He is the high king of heaven come to earth to inaugurate his kingdom and call sinners into it. Jesus has the authority to receive praise. And friends, we are authorized to praise him. That's what we are created for. Not for our own glory, but to reflect his glory and to give him praise for who he is and what he's done in our lives. 
And notice in the quotation here that God has prepared praise for us. It is our duty, our delightful duty to praise him. And not just adults, but little kids down to infants. I think it shows that you don't have to know all there is about Jesus to praise him. A little child doesn't know a lot. But kids here, what you do know about Jesus ought to cause you to praise him, to tell him, thank you for being a great savior. Parents, catechize your kids from birth to praise Jesus. Constantly tell your toddlers, Jesus is God. Teach your little ones, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And as they continue to grow, continue to fill their minds with biblical content about Jesus to fuel their praise. For our older kids here, got a few of y'all. I wonder how you might respond to this verse. If you claim that Jesus is your king and that this king has authority and has demanded our praise, then it's really silly to try to play cool in church. Don't be ashamed of your king. Open your lips and join your parents in singing all off key praise to the king who lived and died for thee. He's worthy. Maybe you know that, but don't have much to say. But friends, take comfort that praise to the Lord doesn't have to be complex. Again, we know that to be true if babies can do it. Maybe you're not a baby, but can't string together many words of praise because you're broken. It's been an especially draining week, a depressing season. And to be honest, it's hard for you to see or sense much of the Lord's nearness or goodness. Well, saints, just praise him for the little bit of light you see right now in the dark. Praise him for waking you this morning. Praise him for sustaining you, for keeping you from ultimate despair. And cherish this sweet thought that the high king of heaven used to the soaring praise of legions of angels in heaven also bends his ear and hears and accepts and loves the simple praise of babes, of you. Praise him. Jesus has authority to receive praise. We also see in this passage that Jesus has authority to curse, to condemn. We see that in verse 18 as Jesus, having left Jerusalem briefly to lodge in the neighboring city of Bethany, returns in the morning and becomes hungry on the way. And so he he turns to a fig tree to get fruit, but finds it fruitless. The only thing on it is leaves. And now Mark's account tells us it wasn't the season for figs. It was probably early April, a month or two away from full fig season. But that's why this fig tree stands out so much. It's full of leaves, fully bloomed, not fully in bloom time. And with fig trees, the figs appear almost simultaneously with the leaves. 
And so a fig tree full of leaves should also be full of figs. But when Jesus draws near, it's all leaf and no fruit. It's false advertisement. Looking impressive on the outside, but having nothing on the inside. It put on a good show, but really had nothing to show for. And so Jesus curses it and it withers immediately. Now, before the inner arborist in you rises up and curses the Lord of creation for cursing a tree, understand what's going on here. It's something of an acted out parable. Jesus cursing this figless fig tree, leafy but lacking fruit, is symbolic of his cursing the hypocrisy of his people, the people of Israel, who are associated several times in the Old Testament with a fig tree, and especially cursing the religious leaders among them. Their lives on the outside look fine. They put on an impressive appearance, an appearance of godliness. But it's all a front. There's no real fruit, no real righteousness, no real worship. Uh, Again, it's tied to Jesus' cleansing the temple. There, the temple looked busy. It looked like it was full of life with its bustling scene of activity and commerce, of animals being bought and sold and sacrificed over and over and over all day. But when Jesus came, he claimed it was all a show, not real worship. And so he cleaned house. You see, Jesus has no tolerance for fake faith. He can see it and sniff it out. And friends, he can and will judge it. To others, our lives might look really good, really holy. You know, we can clean up our speech at church, treat our husbands or wives better when company comes over, clear the history and delete the cookies on the computer before the parents come home. We can present ourselves as good God-honoring folks. Our lives can be full of leaves. But Jesus sees behind the leaves. Just as God saw behind Adam and Eve's leafy covering down to the root of their sin. Friends, instead of covering our sin with the leaves of merely outward acts of obedience that will ultimately lead to our condemnation, we should instead openly confess our sins that the Lord might be faithful and just to forgive them. You you see, there's no kind of show you can put on to fool Jesus. He knows you, knows who you are. And so you might as well confess how rotten you are at the core and run to him to produce in you by his word and by his spirit and by his people, uh, good and true spiritual fruit. Jesus hates hypocrisy and has authority to curse, to condemn hypocrites. Don't you be one of them, someone with false faith. Rather, be someone who exemplifies 
true faith, which isn't so much characterized by how impressive you look on the outside before others, but how your life is characterized inside before God. Notice that right after cursing this fig tree, in verses 20 through 22, the disciples are astonished at how the tree could wither so quickly. To which Jesus says, oh, you can do great things too through prayer. But that doesn't look very impressive. Prayer? How will others see that? Well, that's just it. They don't. They shouldn't. Jesus said earlier in in this book that the hypocrites pray in public out on the street corners to be seen by others. But you are to pray in quiet, in secret. And the father who sees in secret will reward you. One of the grand marks of genuine faith, of real spiritual faith, is a life of believing prayer, trusting God to accomplish even the hardest things on behalf of his children. So so one of the ways you can keep away from the condemnation of Jesus for hypocrisy is to keep a constant, hidden prayer life that testifies of your true faith in God. We've seen the, the king at work throughout these verses. Not only has he come, he's come with authority. Authority to cleanse. Authority to receive praise. Authority to condemn. But even with all we've seen, we see further that this king's rule is rejected. That leads to our third and final point, the king's rejection. Point number three, the king's rejection. Verse 23 opens with Jesus back in the temple and once again confronted with the religious leaders. And as he's teaching, they ask, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? By this point in Jesus' ministry, it's pretty self-evident. I mean, this is the final week of his life. For Three years of public ministry, all the things he's done have pointed to the source of his authority. I mean, one of the religious leaders, very own, Nicodemus, told Jesus early on, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. So this is not a genuine question by the chief priests and the elders here. They know that the authority that Jesus possesses is a God-given authority. Shows that a form of rejecting Jesus is requesting more and more information from him. Even after you've refused to accept the information he's already given you. A pastor friend reminded me a, a couple weeks ago. You know, Jesus welcomes genuine questions. You see that time and time again as he deals with his disciples. But if you simply use questions as a smokescreen to hide your unbelief, you have no hope for help. So Jesus doesn't even engage in an argument about his authority here. He simply counters the religious leader's question with a question. 
He says in verses 24 and 25, tell me where the baptism of John came from. That's kind of a description of John's entire ministry. Uh, Who gave him authority to carry it out? Did it come from heaven or from man? If you answer that, then I'll tell you where my authority comes from. At the end of verse 25, the leaders huddle up. If we say from heaven, he'll say, why didn't you believe him then? But if we say from man, we're afraid for all all the people think that John was a prophet. So the best solution from the supposedly brightest religious minds in all Jerusalem is we don't know. Yeah, they do. But so stubborn and stiff-necked and set on opposing Jesus are they that they refuse to acknowledge what's right before them. They know where John's authority came from. And more, they know where Jesus' authority comes from. They've heard his words. They've witnessed his works. And they know no one can do these things unless God. But they got to catch themselves lest their spot as top of the religious crop is threatened and Jesus gets the shine. Uh, we, don't, we don't know. And Jesus responds in verse 27, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Their rejection is met with his rejection. Friends, be instructed here. Don't be deceived in believing that there are great differences between denials. You might think, and I don't know about Jesus is better than an all out. I don't believe in Jesus. But a seemingly more neutral agnosticism and a more hardened, aggressive atheism both share this. They both reject Jesus as king. But that's how Jesus has revealed himself as king. And that's how we must submit to him as king and Lord over us as our only savior and hope. And we must believe in him. You see, Christianity isn't just belief in belief, just belief in some blind hope, belief in some ethereal make believe uh, something stuff out there. That's what other folks believe in. That's how they define faith. Christianity is belief in a person, in Jesus Christ. We believe in him, not because our parents necessarily just told us so, or not because that's what's popular to do. It's unpopular to do. We believe in him because of what he's revealed of himself. I mean, see what he says. See what he's done. Look at his word. It self-attests from front cover to back cover of his kingship. The religious leaders were too blind to see it. And their hard-heartedness forfeited any further gracious divine illumination. Jesus would not clearly tell them what they wanted. And so Jesus ends using parables in the rest of this passage to point out the nature of their rejection and of their self-condemnation. In verse Verses 28 through 32, he tells a parable of a man with two sons. He he charged the first son to to go and work in the vineyard. He refused, but later changed his mind. To the second son, the father demanded he go into the vineyard as well. That son initially said he would gladly go, but later refused. 
So Jesus asked the, the leaders in verse 31, which of the sons did the will of his father? This question, they answer outrightly and correctly. The first, it's not the son who, who simply said, I'll go, I'll do what you say, who follows the father's will. It's the son who actually goes, even if he initially bucks or rejects. The one who changes his mind and later goes while the other one never does is the one who is approved. And Jesus likens it to these religious leaders. They were the ones who claimed, yes, I'll do the father's will. The father being God in the parable. I'll live for him. I'll do whatever he has. But it was all lip service. While Jesus says the tax collectors and the prostitutes, those lowest in spiritual standing, the seemingly most sinful, most despicable sinners in society are the ones who actually enter into God's kingdom, who become part of it. Why? Because they turn from their sins and believe. They believed what John said, that they were sinners and needed forgiveness. They were baptized by John as a sign of their need for a new life. And they believed who John pointed to, Jesus, the one who came to bring new life and to take away the sins of all the world, of all those who would trust in him by his life and death and resurrection. They, wicked as they were, they are tax collectors and prostitutes. Wicked as they were, they turned. And in turning, they were transformed. But you, religious leaders, rejected the witness of John. Rejected the witness of, witness of transformed tax collectors and prostitutes and reject the one who John pointed to. There is therefore no hope for you. Friends, how many witnesses has the Lord put in your life to lead you to Christ? Perhaps he put your godly grandmother in your life to, to testify of Jesus. Or he put your once wayward parents or spouse or cousin or friend in your life whose sin you've seen on full display and perhaps once participated in. But you've seen how their lives have totally changed. They ain't perfect, but they sure are not what they used to be. God has put them in your life to testify of Jesus' saving power. And yet, you still reject him as king? As Messiah? How long will you go on rejecting him? God has put all these witnesses in your life. The witness of other people, the witness of this church, the witness of his word to point to Jesus and to call you to do what the end of verse 32 says you should do. You must do repent and believe in Jesus. Amen. Friend, do that today. Right now, confess your sins and turn from them and turn to Jesus and put your complete trust and reliance on him alone for salvation. Amen. Don't let today be another in a long line of instances of rejecting Jesus. And Jesus closes the chapter with yet one more parable, highlighting the hypocritical religious leaders and, and the people of Israel's largely hard-hearted rejection of their king, of their Messiah. 
In verses 33 through 41, he talks of a master who planted a vineyard and leased the land out. And the master here represents God the Father, who sends out servants to go and gather fruit at harvest time. The tenants, however, take the servants and they beat them and they kill others and they stone still others. So the master sends other servants and the tenants do the same. They beat and they kill and they stone them. The picture of what the people of Israel had long done to all the prophets that God had sent as servants to his people. Beat them. Killed them. Rejected them. And through them, rejected God's rule over them. And finally, the master says in verse 37, I will send my son. They will respect my son. But the tenants in verse 38 instead say, this is the heir. We can kill him and have his inheritance. We can take what belongs to him. And so they took him and they killed the master's son. Amen. After telling the parable, Jesus asked the leaders in verse 40, when the owner comes, what should he do to these tenants? They respond again rightly in verse 41, he should put those wretches to a miserable death and give the vineyard to others who will produce fruit in its season for the master. I mean, those tenants, look, look, what they, they, look, look what they've done. They've totally misunderstood their place. They are acting like they are the owners over the landowner. They so mistreat the, the master's servants. And then they go and murder the master's son in order to take hold of the inheritance. As if they deserve to have it instead of him. It was despicable. Shocking. These people deserve a miserable death. The worst kind of death. The religious leaders see that. Who wouldn't? Only they again were too blind to see that they talked about themselves. Condemned themselves for what they deserve from God. For these same religious leaders would join in just a few days with crowds and crowds of their Jewish countrymen and commit the greatest act of rejection of Jesus yet. They would condemn Jesus and have him crucified on a cross. They would kill the master's son, put God's son to death. Saints, you don't know how far your sin will take you. A little rejection of Jesus today may lead to a lot of rejection of Jesus tomorrow. You see, the stubborn resistance to bow to his authority, even in seemingly small things, is the exact heart posture behind the heinous act of calling for his crucifixion. We will not have him as our king. Away with him so I can take his place as king of my own life. Friends, that's sin. Rejecting Christ and his claim over every area of your life. And it will lead to him, the crucified yet risen king, the stone rejected yet that has become the cornerstone. It will lead to him rejecting you and giving you no claim to his kingdom. Jesus says in verse 43, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Those who reject Jesus 
will be cut off from his kingdom. It will be taken from these religious leaders, taken from the largely rejecting people of Israel, and given to a new people. And not simply marked by Jewish descent, but marked by what these religious leaders lacked. Submission to King Jesus and trust in him. Hearing the scary outcome of, of what said rejection of Christ would mean did not soften these Jews' hearts one bit. Verses 45 and 46 tell us when the chief priests and Pharisees heard these parables and perceived they were about them, they didn't repent. They continued to reject. They sought to arrest Jesus. What about you? How will you respond to King Jesus today? To his arrival? To his authority? Will you gladly receive him as king over every area, every aspect of your life? Or will you hard-heartedly reject him? It matters. It matters. Because rightly recognizing Jesus as king and rightly responding to him is the key to entering his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for sending King Jesus to come and reign on earth. We thank you that his reign was not one where he warred against his rebels, Lord, but where he came and laid down his life for his rebels. Lord, we thank you that King Jesus paid the price for our sins so that we rebels could be brought into his kingdom. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to see who Jesus is, our king, and to respond to his authority by bowing our hearts in submission to him. Forgive us the ways we've not done that. Help us, Lord, to even now trust him more fully. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.